0: may be seated. Stand in just a minute, but just a couple comments before we read the scriptures again. Uh, Today's message represents the third in a series from the book of Hebrews. We've seen so far that Jesus is supreme over all creation and that he is better than angels. Today, I invite you to notice an exhortation or warning not to neglect, and especially not to ultimately reject the Lord Jesus, for He is indeed better, He is indeed a faithful priest to us, and He is indeed a brother. So let's turn to our our attention once again to God's holy, inherent Word, the Epistle of Hebrews, chapter 2, but before we stand and read His Word to us, let us pray and ask God for his Holy Spirit's attendance to that word. Let's pray. Dear Father, your word is truth. And we need to hear your word each and every day, but especially on the Lord's day. And because your word is truth, and also because your word is divinely inspired, we need your spirit to help us understand it. And so we pray now that as we turn again to your word to read and to explain it, we pray that your spirit will attend it and that you will open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to what your spirit is saying to your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Please stand if you are able in honor of God's word, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. This is God's word, and it is true. Hebrews chapter 1, uh, excuse me, 2, beginning in verse 1. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to the angels, to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. it has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. He crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, and he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death who were subjected to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks God. Please be seated. Before I begin today, I need to acknowledge that I got the outline of the sermon from Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe. When I saw Wiersbe's outline, I thought it was a very good summary and a breakdown of Hebrews chapter 2, and so I sort of borrowed it. Okay, I stole it. But not without attribution. I only mention this because we live in a day when even high-profile Christian ministers have been known to plagiarize sermons. I want to be very careful about not making mention of those who have helped me in in this preparation process. By the way, they say uh, AI now can even write a sermon. God help us when robots... Start writing our sermons. I pray that I never get to that point. Now, speaking of robots, there's this famous robot from TV and screen, and his name is Robot. And if you're already following me, you'll remember that the robot named Robot from the Lost in Space franchise would issue warnings when danger was near. Robot would say to the youngest of the Lost in Space Robinson family, "Danger, danger, Will Robinson." Remember that? My family. I actually watched the robot uh, uh, or the reboot, I should say, of the Lost in Space TV show recently, and it's it's pretty great, by the way. Warning, warning, danger, Will Robinson. Well, in today's passage. We have a sort of similar warning, a warning of danger, but not a danger of approaching aliens, nor a danger of, you know, the spaceship crashing or something like that. Today we see a warning of a danger of drifting, and not drifting away in space, but drifting away from Christ. And that, in every way possible, is a much more profound danger than anything of which robot would remind Will Robinson. Now, though the title of this section of the sermon, these first four verses, is called an exhortation, I want to emphasize that this is indeed a warning, a warning of danger. An exhortation is a type of warning. And the book of Hebrews is known for these warnings. There are five of them throughout the book, and this is the first of those five. It's also important to understand up front as we talk about this particular warning or exhortation that the original writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, positions these five warnings strategically throughout the book in order to save and to preserve God's people. This is how God's word, his law, if you will, this is how it works. God uses these warnings, these exhortations, and sometimes his his law, His literal law, to remind His people of danger. And sometimes, as well, He uses these same warnings to call us to faith in Christ. So whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or you're not a believer in Christ yet, this warning is for you and it it's for me. As the Holy Spirit speaks to us through these pages and these words, God calls us to Jesus or back to Jesus, as the case may be. So this is your warning. This is your exhortation. This is God's warning to you, to me. Don't drift. Don't drift. Verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Notice that verse reminds us To pay attention. Pay attention. He's saying, Hear me now. Listen up. Like the old football coach you had in high school, holding up his hand in gym class and saying, Listen up. Pay attention. What I'm about to tell you is very important. But this is not organizing a dodgeball game. We're talking about eternal matters, weighty matters. Very, very important issues. And so he says we must pay close attention. But to what? To what shall we pay attention? Well, the gospel, of course. The words of Jesus, of course. The first verse of chapter 2 parallels the first section of chapter 1 in the book of Hebrews, and it tells us that Jesus or that verse in chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the final word. And so it's the final word, Jesus, to whom we must pay attention. He is the one to whom we must listen. We cannot drift from Jesus or his word to us. We cannot drift from the gospel. What is his gospel? This glorious story... The gospel is the glorious story that the Son of God has come for us, lived for us, died for us, risen for us, and lives at the Father's right hand for us. Listen up. Pay attention to his final word, Jesus, lest you drift away from him, lest you drift away from him and his glorious gospel. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels provided to be reliable, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he says, how shall we escape? Escape what? Escape judgment. The reference in verse 2 is to the giving of the law at Sinai, and just as those who initially received the law were judged with plagues and sometimes death when they rejected that law, so we will also be judged if we drift completely away from the great salvation provided to us in Jesus Christ. The law could not save our Hebrew forefathers, nor can it save us. But they were called to obey it in faith, while looking to the Messiah and participating in Yahweh's sacrificial system. But when they disobeyed this word, this law and grace as revealed at Sinai, and when they did, they were judged. Now, I mentioned earlier that we believe that God uses his law, these strong warnings, to preserve his people. And this is important to emphasize. We, as Reformed Christians, believe in perseverance of the saints. That is to say that if we are truly united to Christ, then Christ will preserve us and keep us until he calls us home. And this is a great comfort. He will hold us fast, as the modern hymn proclaims. Jesus holds his sheep, and no one will snatch them out of his hands. But again, as I said, one of the ways he preserves his people is through these strong warnings. So we must listen, we must pay attention, we must not drift, must not drift. We must focus on the word of Christ, we must focus on the gospel of Jesus. This word of Jesus is declared to us, and it continues to be declared to us each and every Sunday in word and sacrament by the Holy Spirit, and it is by this word that the Spirit keeps us. So all of us who are in Christ here this morning should be reminded to listen up, to pay close attention to Jesus and the great salvation he came to bring. When we do that, he promises to preserve us. He will save us. He will keep us and hold us fast. So don't drift. Don't drift. Now that's just the first four verses of this passage, and of course, it's really a sermon in itself. In fact, I told Michael when he asked me to preach today that I wasn't sure if I would just preach this first section or the whole chapter. Well, I chose the whole chapter, so here goes the next 14 verses. In this next section, beginning in verse 5, the writer attempts to answer a question that many very well may uh, may have very well arisen in the minds of the original hearers of this text, and that is this. If Jesus is better than angels in himself, in his person, if Jesus is God and therefore the creator of angels, the king of angels, if all those things are true of Jesus and angels are not confined to human bodies, then why would Jesus need to be confined to a human body? Why would Jesus need to be enfleshed? Why would the Son of God need to take on a human nature? And so the writer answers that question in three ways. First, Jesus took on flesh in order to be the last Adam. Next, he took on flesh to defeat the devil. And lastly, in his incarnation, Jesus came to be a sympathetic priest. So let's look at those three points as an explanation as to why the Son of God became a man. So the last Adam. One of the most glorious titles our Lord holds. It's the title that the Apostle Paul attributes to Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And though this exact phrase does not appear in these verses, the concept is all over this section of verses. Because verses 5 through 13 have to to do with the incarnation. The Son of God taking on human flesh in order that He might redeem that same human flesh. There's a lot to learn in these nine verses about the incarnation, Jesus taking on the role of the last Adam, but there are three key words or phrases here that I think bear scrutiny and will help us really appreciate what the writer is saying. First, let's look at verse 9, where the writer reminds us that for us, Jesus came to taste death. He writes, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that death accomplished later, but let's talk about this idea of tasting death, taste death. Doesn't that seem like a strange thing for Jesus to do? But that's really a literal interpretation of what the Greek word conveys. Jesus tasted, experienced, even savored death for us, those of us for whom he died, so that we ultimately wouldn't have to die ourselves, or at least not die in the same way. Jesus had had to die. Now, Jesus didn't have to die, did he? He's God. He is the Son of God, the God-man, and God cannot die in His essential nature. But in His humanity, that is exactly what Jesus did. The one final enemy that we all fear and we all will and are facing each and every day, death. This is the thing that Jesus experienced, tasted on our behalf. We know that death entered the world upon Adam's sin, all of us are now recipients of this reality, and we can't escape it unless someone takes it on, takes it on on death on our behalf, who can reverse that sting of death. And that's what Jesus has done for us as the last Adam. Secondly, and by the way, there are three subpoints under your first point in your outline if you're, if you're taking notes. Uh, Secondly, Jesus is the founder of our salvation, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The Greek word archigon, translated founder here, is a term that is somewhat difficult to interpret. It has elsewhere been translated author. Jesus, the original author, of Our salvation Sinclair Ferguson has taught that the term really conveys the idea of something more like pioneer or even hero, like Davy Crockett or maybe even Superman. Years ago, there was a song proclaiming that Davy Crockett was the king of the wild frontier, blazing trails for all those who would follow him out west. We also have a city in our very own state named after. One such person, Boone, as in the city named for Daniel Boone, who led folks west and opened new possibilities for thousands and even ultimately millions of people behind him. Crockett and Boone and others like them led the way. And then there's also this idea of hero contained in this this Greek word. I'm not a huge fan of the superhero genre. I think it's kind of been overdone over the past few years, especially with the Marvel Universe phenomenon. But I get it. Superheroes remind us that there are those uh, things, there are those who can do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Whenever the phrase, this looks like a job for Superman, was uttered in the stories of that superhero, the ultimate superhero, It is an indication that Superman was about to do something that only he could do. He was about to catch a falling Empire State Building, or on one occasion, he even reversed the rotation of the earth and took its inhabitants back in time. Only Superman could do that. In the same way, only Jesus, as the founder or leader or pioneer or uh, hero of our salvation, can do what he did because he is the son of God, because he, although the creator took on flesh, he is the only one who can save the inhabitants of earth from sin and death and destruction. He is our superhero. He is our pioneer. And only he could have done this thing that we can't do for ourselves, namely, save our very souls from hell. The third word in this section of Scripture that is so beautiful as it reminds us of Jesus' role as the last Adam is brother. Jesus, the Son of God, is our brother. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And then he quotes Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, which is the psalm Jesus quoted uh, from the cross, by the way. Jesus quotes verse 1 from, that, uh, from the cross, but the writer quotes verse 22 and says that Jesus calls us brother. This is the mind-blowing connection that the creator and sustainer of the universe, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, condescends to us in such a way that he can call us brother. Wow. He tastes death on our behalf. He steps in as our pioneer and our hero, and he calls us friend and brother. That's what Jesus does as our last Adam, something that angels simply could not do. And it's so beautiful. And it's the reason that he is due all honor, praise, and glory that we can provide. The idea of last Adam reminds us that only Jesus, the eternal Son, can redeem what Adam lost. Because as the eternal Son, clothed in humility, only he can gain back eternal life for fallen humanity. But that's not all. He also defeats the devil on our behalf. This is found in verses 14 through 16 of our passage today. I'm going to reread those three verses. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The comedian Rip Wilson from the 60s and 70s that's before many of your times, but some of us remember, uh, was made famous by a character he created who uh, used to often utter the phrase, the devil made me do it. This character, as I recall, was kind of a phony preacher. And it was, it was a funny line. But one of the reasons it was funny is that it, there was that ring of truth, Right? Because all of us want to blame the devil for our sins, so we don't have to take responsibility for it on ourselves. But the true Christian, the one who is not a phony, should understand that Jesus defeated the devil on our behalf. We dare not blame the devil for our sin. The devil is not responsible for our sin. We are. Jesus has defeated the devil, and as we saw in our gospel reading today, he defeated the devil's temptations in the wilderness by correcting Satan's false understanding of God's word. And the devil leaves Jesus, and then he is comforted by angels. And then, of course, Jesus would go on from there to defeat Satan at the cross. The devil is a defeated foe, and Jesus, the last Adam, has done that for us. This is another thing that he has done in his incarnation that no other man can do. You know, it was a big emphasis of Martin Luther that Jesus had defeated the devil, death, and hell. And we sang about that today, right? By the way, I chose uh, Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, today, anticipating this point I'm making today in the sermon, not knowing that Ben Haman uh, also chose that hymn for next week. Um, So we'll be singing it next week as well, and then probably in a couple weeks after that, we'll be singing it as we celebrate Reformation Month. So I hope you love that hymn. I know I do. <laughs> but there's a lot in that hymn that is instructive here. One little word shall fell him. That's fell, f-e-l-l-o. That is the devil. One little word shall fell him. To what was Luther referring to when he wrote that, that term, that word, that phrase? What little word defeats Satan, the deceiver? Is it Jesus the word Jesus? Well, yes, that's one, that's one possibility, but most Lutheran scholars agree that the final word that uh, fell Satan is actually liar. Liar. The devil is a defeated foe because Jesus has defeated him. And so, when the accuser tries to remind us of our sin, we should, as would Luther, repeat back that word to him Devil, you are a liar. My sin has been dealt with at the cross. You are defeated, and your lies will not convince me that I am not a child of God, that I am not a brother of Jesus. The devil is a liar, and he is a defeated foe, and we dare not blame our sin on him. Only we are responsible, and we should take responsibility for our own sin. Jesus has defeated our great enemy. Not just death, not just sin, but the devil himself. Last point. Jesus not only is the last Adam and the defeater of our foe, but he is also a sympathetic priest. Again, verses seventeen and eighteen. Therefore he had made he, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is such an important aspect of Jesus' humanity, and it becomes a part of the preacher to the Hebrews' exhortation. Because he wants us to see not only that we can't blame the devil because he is a defeated foe, but we have a power and freedom over sin in, in, uh, in the here and now because Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our sympathetic priest because he himself was tempted and yet was without sin. And so we are free to, to resist temptation ourselves as those who are united to Christ. As Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, It is for freedom Christ has set us free. So stand, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, we are free because Jesus has overcome temptation, not just in the wilderness against the devil, but at every turn in his life. He actively obeyed the law and resisted successfully each and every temptation that came at him. And this is throughout his life. The writer of Hebrews will go on to say in chapter 4 as he develops a theology of Jesus' priesthood that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet he was without sin. He resisted the temptation to disobey and dishonor his his father. He resisted the temptation to violate the Sabbath. He resisted the temptation to dishonor his earthly parents, to lie, to steal, cheat, commit adultery, covet his neighbor's possessions, all those sins, and many, many more. Throughout his life, he perfectly obeyed God's law, and those of us who are united to him have the power to resist the very same sins because his sympathy towards us in this regard empowers us to overcome sin as well. Our Jesus is a sympathetic priest, and as such, we can live lives of victory over sin, and we will not do that perfectly in this lifetime. Which is the, why the last thing I want to say about this passage, as we wrap up, is so important. <laughs> There's a rarely used word here in verse 17 that the writer of Hebrews sort of sneaks in. That's this word sort of sums up everything Jesus came to do as the last Adam especially if we pair it with the idea of Jesus tasting death for us. And it's this word, propitiation, propitiation. This term is somewhat controversial in biblical scholarship, I think mostly because unbelieving scholars don't like the root of what it implies. You see, not only is Jesus a sympathetic high priest in that he overcame temptation, and because of that he can help us to do so, by his, help us to do so as well by his Spirit, But Jesus is also a high priest in the ultimate sense because he identified with us in order to propitiate or expiate our sin. And this is a fancy and in some ways complicated word, but in its most simple form, it just means this. Jesus took the wrath of the Father towards sin for us. He took the punishment for sin that we deserve on himself so we wouldn't have to. And so he propitiates our sin. He died for our sin. Those of us who have believed and received him and are united to him by faith, he died for us. It's a profound and complicated, but also a simple truth that we need to hear pretty much every day. Pretty much every moment of every day. Whether we hear it from this preacher Or we preach it to ourselves, or we read it in God's holy and errant word. Jesus died for our sin. It's one of the most basic things we must understand if we are to consider ourselves Christians. Because here's the thing Jesus has defeated the devil. And we can call the devil out for his lies, and we and we can overcome his temptations and the temptations that arise from our own hearts, because Jesus is our sympathetic priest who has defeated the devil. But we also have indwelling sin, and so we need the reminder that Jesus has propitiated that very sin. The wrath of God has uh, the wrath of God for our sin. Jesus has taken that wrath. For us, And that ultimately is the reason we can and should call the devil a liar when he tempts us to turn our backs on Jesus and sin against him. Because we all sin, and when we sin, we can know that Jesus has taken that sin upon himself at the cross. Remember I said Jesus quotes Psalm 22 at the cross, and that very psalm is quoted here in this Hebrews passage reminding us of Jesus' brotherhood. The very very last verse of that psalm, a psalm of the cross, and what Jesus has done for us points us to a subtle yet profound way. Uh, It it points us in a, a profound way to this propitiation of which I've been speaking. It reminds us of what Christ has done in dying for us. Psalm 22, verse 31 shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Done what? What has Jesus our Messiah done? He has propitiated our sin. He has died for us. And so we can overcome temptation because he is a sympathetic high priest. But ultimately our only hope as we heed this warning today, not to drift, is that Jesus, our last Adam, Jesus, our hero, our champion against the devil, our brother and our priest, has died for our sin. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this passage that we just read and talked about It's actually very difficult. There are a lot of profound truths that draw us closer to Jesus and point us to him and are sometimes hard to understand. But the most profound truth of all is this. Jesus died for our sins. Help us, Heavenly Father, to cling to that truth with everything we have. Help us to never forget When we struggle with sin, not only that we can have freedom over that sin, but that Jesus died for that very sin. And So we thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have this promise, and we have this great Savior, the author, the perfecter, the pioneer, the hero of our faith. We pray in his name, amen.